I've always had this thing where when I'm making a record, I think it's going to be the best record that anyone ever made. And I get really excited about it and then sort of, you know, have this process that I think all artists go through where um, there's not necessarily disillusionment, but there's like this moment where you realize like, hey, this could have been better. I could have done something better. And now, and now I don't like the thing that I just poured my life into for, uh, you know, two years or whatever. And so my life has been this very interesting uh, dichotomy, I guess, which is on the one hand, I have this idea of my, I'm air quoting, real career. And on the other hand, there is the sort of blue collar working business of being a musician that's paying my own bills. This is Musicians Can Thrive, a podcast for anyone seeking to make money in the music industry. Musicians, audio engineers, managers, producers, venue owners, booking agents, everyone across all niches. Welcome. I'm Gabrielle Pittman, and I love music. Listening to it, writing it, producing it, living, breathing, and all that jazz. Aaron Howard is a singer-songwriter who's learned the art of producing and audio engineering out of sheer necessity. A full-time musician who balances coordinating his own tours with a full schedule of restaurant gigs. He's built an impressive audience for himself. I first met Aaron when I was 13, wide-eyed and excited at the idea of someday recording my own songs. About eight weeks later, I could say I had recorded my first single, thanks to the mentorship and production help of Aaron Howard. my life has been split up into two very different careers. One has been something that you might expect, which is playing resorts, restaurants, wine bars, whatever, uh, six, seven times a week, because that's how I pay the bills. Um, The other is making records and then taking a chance and quitting all those gigs and going out on the road and playing mostly listening rooms, so concerts where it is, the event is specifically defined as a concert, which is often house concerts. Sometimes it's a theater opening for somebody way bigger than me, whatever it is. It's hopefully a format where um, people are there to listen and hear the music, not to, for the margarita special, and they haven't seen their significant other in 12 hours. Um, You know what I mean? Like it, it, and so, and so I've lived two very different lives and one feels super alive and full and the other one feels like sort of my job. And by no means have I ever been, that's not true. I was going to say by no means have I ever been ungrateful, but there have been times when I've definitely taken it for granted and been like, I'm tired of these damn restaurant gigs, you know? Um, you know, but one thing I will say is that Every time I made a record to my initial point, I thought it was great. And then, you know, you grow into to the record and or you grow beyond the record or whatever. And you go, oh, you know what? This actually isn't 
at the level that it needs to be to really grow a following. And that process of going over and over and being like, you know, this for sure sounds like major label music. I'm going to knock people's socks off. And, you know, I have made a record or two recently that has gotten more of the kind of reaction I was hoping and expecting, uh, hoping for and expecting. Um, and not just the external reaction, but even in me, like a record I made uh, in 2014, I still like, which is shocking. Um, <laughs> but, uh, gosh, um, as I did all these restaurant shows and sometimes resented them, I realized that they were actually a better tool for making me into a valuable artist than any sort of, you know, validation or career growth would have been. Um, just because playing six times a week to people who initially don't care and may even be um, uncomfortable with your presence initially before they hear you, um, it just has value that I, I can't explain. I meet a lot of artists who never want to not be listened to. And I'm like, please don't be listened to. Trust me. You will learn how to handle a crowd and how to be good with a crowd way better when no one gives a shit that you're there. Because you know what I mean? I can't believe how much um, the restaurant gigs and also just molding performance. I mean, and then playing covers that you actually like is a better way to learn to write songs than going to every seminar and obsessing over songwriting and, and structure and all that stuff. You need the structure and the stuff that you learn in seminars, I think, to write great songs. But, but first, I mean, just knowing a ton of songs and how they work and thinking about why the chords work and all that stuff is huge. And so my point in all this to kind of bring it back is the process of doing these terrible, quote unquote, terrible shows has been one of the best things uh, for my growth as an artist. Um, so yeah, but to catch you up in the last 15 years, basically about 10 years ago, I started making my living full time from music. And in that time, I've made, I guess, four studio records and two live records. And with almost every record I made, I've toured mostly to listening rooms um, and, you know, sold the record from the stage and I've sold, you know, thousands of records that way and somehow managed through most of those tours to continue making a living until I could go back to doing <laughs> the super steady uh, full-time shows, which have mostly been in Phoenix although I did it in uh, Montana and I did it in Chicago as well. Wow. I'm so happy for you. You've been able to, I mean, it's definitely not glamorous or fun all the time, but you've really been able to sustain a long-term thing, making music and playing it over and over again. Yeah. It's been a long time since I had a, a job or have really complained about my work. I think sometimes I spend more tedious hours on a laptop than any normal person should, you know, sending emails and, and all that. I definitely don't like that part. 
Right. I don't either. I, I mean, I really, you know what's funny is I really don't like social media. And that's, that's probably one of my biggest faults and, and one of the biggest hindrances to my growth. And I am not recommending being a person who doesn't like social media. I'm saying that I think it's hurt my ability to grow this enormously, um, you know, because it really is a real asset. Just, I think it's dangerous for me and for my, uh, for my pride, not my pride, not my pride. I think that there's a part of me that is able to check it 35 times to see who liked and commented over and over. And that's probably not all that unique, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's definitely its own kind of dangerous cycle, though. I know one of my biggest frustrations with it is, I mean, growing up with the family I did, I was always encouraged to create rather than consume. And so it's so easy to get stuck and like sucked into social media because it's made for that. And it's so easy to get sucked into this idea that like a significant portion of your self-worth comes from that engagement on your social media following. Especially in these careers, especially when you're making music or podcasts, people are like, what are your numbers like? I mean, that's a real question. It's interesting. I think in music it can be pretty damn valuable. I, my uh, Facebook following, I, you know, because I could see my metrics on Kickstarter. When I raised 10 grand on Kickstarter, my Facebook was 6,400 of it. Um, keeping in mind that I made over 100 direct phone calls and sent links to people via text when they said they would pledge. So my Instagram traffic, direct traffic, and email traffic combined was about half of what came from just Facebook posts. Non-sponsored at the time. It was before. It was back when I could get, you know, 100 engagements on, a, on an unsponsored post from my band page. Um, well, so that's huge, too. And my second Kickstarter, I got less from uh, Facebook and I sponsored every single post. So, I mean, it's changed, it's changed too. But, you know, I see people that really are filling their shows from, you know, largely from Instagram and stuff. I mean, people that have, you know, there's definitely um, value, I think, for musicians. The problem is these people are posting 10, maybe five stories a day minimum and two posts a day with all the requisite hashtags. And they're actually doing these crazy things where they follow every single person that is conversing specifically about the music on a similar artist's picture. They'll find the comment section, be like, this person actually for sure likes the music. They're not just following a celebrity. And they'll just follow all those people and then look with something like Instagram followers app or whatever and unfollow people who don't follow them back. And I mean, they're doing hardcore like hours a day stuff. But it's working. So I don't think it's necessarily not valuable. It just, it just kills me to spend time on social media. I, I think it might be the biggest failing of my potential career uh, 
is, is, is that, you know, most of the growth on my social media platforms has been entirely people that came to shows, you know, and I had a little thing in my briefcase, my like merch suitcase thing that says my social media platforms. And then they, you know, uh, they find me, um, because I don't reach out and I, uh, and then I, I post pretty infrequently. That's so interesting. I think that's honestly one of my biggest frustrations with social media, because I've noticed how, like, I, I pay attention to the things that I follow because once I started working in marketing, I was, I had a whole other level of appreciation for things that were done well. Um, yeah. and I, I can definitely see and recognize how if you're able to build a community around yourself as an artist, social media is invaluable and irreplaceable for that. But it takes so much time away from the creation of anything else that it's like me as a small person, quote unquote, in the scheme of like popularity or relevance or whatever you want to call it. If you're a small time player, you can't really afford to have a whole team or even just one other person dedicated to making your social media as good as it possibly could be. So then you either have to sacrifice the quality of your art, which you really care about, or the quality of your social media, or somehow drive yourself crazy trying to do both at the same level. Totally. I, the thing I think is that you said that's a key there is the word community. Um, because I feel like community can be something that's more about conversations and more about making people feel seen uh, rather than being seen. And that is a tweak of, of framing or mindset that does help me with social media. I think that you're totally right on the other hand that you can't, it's really hard to create valuable content for social media and then go and be an awesome artist with all that extra creative energy, because it seems based on, you know, science that, that uh, willpower and creativity are limited resources that just simply don't stay high all day long. You use them, you know, the um, uh, Erickson study that led to the quote unquote 10,000 hour rule that um, Gladwell popularized what was with violinists and he found that there was a point of no return for deliberate practice. And it was beyond what I thought it was three and a half or four hours a day or something. So these 10,000 hour violin practicers, uh, still didn't practice more than maybe four hours a day in any way that was very valuable. And they understood that. Um, and I think that creativity is the same way. Like I have totally worked 18 hours on, some aspect of a record in a day where I, you know, get up early in the morning and go to bed way after midnight. But I'm not sure that the, the value, that the quality is there. Um, and I think that social media, spending three or four hours a day on that, would absolutely impact your art. And it's funny because some of my very favorite uh, artists and authors don't really play that game. I mean, like Stephen Pressfield and uh, Seth Godin and uh, like Robert Greene. I mean, like he, like he writes books. That's all he does. Pressfield basically writes books and writes this, you know, weekly writing Wednesdays blog. 
and Seth Godin blogs every day and writes books and you know now he does all the MBA and all these other things that are amazing but you don't see Seth Godin being like hey what do you guys think of this new marketing you know what I mean like it's just not like you don't see these these he doesn't do Facebook posts and I'm sure most of the stuff for Alt MBA and stuff is handled by other people and he just goes live and talks about it and answers people's questions. Um, you know, it seems like a lot of great artists are not playing that game. <laughs> yeah, I think if you want to be able to create amazing art and do it consistently, repeatedly, over and over again, at some point you have to focus and say, this is what I'm going to do. And Seth Godin does a great job of creating space for him to focus on his art. Like even this podcast internship, well, fellowship that I've been doing, there's a woman named Alex De Palma, and she's a podcast producer. She produces Akimbo for him. And she really is a person that's writing the lessons and keeping up with us. Like Seth checks in every once in a while with us on Zoom, but otherwise it's mostly hands off for him. Right. Everything is. And I mean, like he doesn't talk about his real life at all, which you're encouraged to do in the social media game. He really does his work and moves on. I, I read a thing from, uh, or maybe it was a video, but it was from Sean Coyne, who's Stephen Pressfield's editor and also a remarkable editor in the book publishing world um, for decades. And he talked about he had an idea and he wanted to talk to Seth Godin. And Seth was like, okay, you have 15 minutes at this time. <laughs> and as soon as the 15 minutes was up, Seth was like, thank you so much. Goodbye. You know, and this is somebody who is like at Seth's level or even more so in his world and they're friends. And it was just like, you know, I think one of the things Seth does well is eliminate distractions and, and not let things take away from his work. You know, I mean, it seems like it from, I mean, it's all, you know, we don't really know anything, but, but based on the output and the quality of the output, it seems, you know, and the stories, it seems like that's the case. Yeah, seriously. I've got mad respect for that man. <laughs> if I can be a fraction of his level of productive and creating work that makes a change and putting it out there, I think I could die a happy woman. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's the thing. I think you just hit the nail on the head about something. It, if you can produce that kind of output, like without worrying about whether it's working, and, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't try to make it work, I guess, but man, if just the output, just the creative output, and, and of course, shipping, publishing, putting it out to whoever you can, Sometimes I think that that's like the magic formula to actually building an audience more than anything else is that the audience, you know, if you're earnestly putting out a lot of work and it's getting better and better, that that's kind of the answer to growing it. Because it's certainly been the case whenever I've done something where I'm putting out a lot of stuff that a lot of momentum comes out of it and it can be exhausting. But I would say more momentum has come out of just releasing content on a consistent basis uh, than any trying to be seen or heard that I've ever done in my life. Does that make sense? Yeah, I feel like that's definitely something that I've noticed 
in my own experience of whether it's trying to, I mean, even just this newsletter that I started, you know, it's, <laughs> it is the most informal email thing ever. It has no consistency to its schedule, but I just at some point realized, okay, I have a core group of people that do actually give a shit what I'm doing. And if I post on social media, they're probably not going to see it. So I'm just going to, for this core group of people, let them know if I release something, if I'm working on something new. Like, I try to sort of include some life updates because there are, like, some family or family friends on there. But I try and keep that stuff mostly out of there and just focus on the work that I'm doing. And even just the fact of, like, I have to keep myself sort of accountable to that. And I have to think, okay, so I started this thing. It has momentum going. I can't just let it stall. I mean, I could, but that's dumb. So like, what am I doing next? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, like, well, I guess I better do it. Yeah, totally. I think, I honestly think that that version of public accountability is huge. I mean, I wonder if that's almost the more valuable aspect of crowdfunding, you know, than, than even making money is just like you're all in on this project and you're all watching it happen and that means I'm going to keep doing it I'm going to keep working on it oh uh, yeah now you got to put in the discipline you know? make the work ship it release it get it out there and then move on before you get caught up in the between records doldrums or between things you know what I mean yeah yeah That's, that has taken me down more than once where it's like oh, I just finished the thing now I'm going to do survival for a while. <laughs> yes. you know? Regardless of how you personally feel about social media, it's probably smart for you to have at least one account on one social platform that you use to help promote yourself. At the end of the day, quality is still better than quantity. So don't stress yourself out about needing to post at some crazy rate, like five posts a day or something. Just do what you can when you can. When you get to a point where you need to hire someone to help you manage it, well, that's exciting. And you can cross that bridge when you come to it. In the meantime, don't forget to ship your most important work as often as possible. I'm curious because I know a little bit from what you've told me in the past about how you knew at some point that you wanted to do music, but I don't quite know what that turning point was. Like, when did you know that music was the thing you wanted to make money off of and spend the rest of your life doing? You know, um, it was, I was pretty young. So I fell in love with music when I was a very, very, very young child. And I had kind of a unique upbringing in that, uh, well, I was raised in a church where we had to, um, where music wasn't necessarily good. By the rules of my church, like music with a beat was, um, was bad in a number of ways that meant I wasn't allowed to listen to it. So I didn't grow up with the records that ended up being the inspiration for my whole you know, later life. Um, but the music that was available was one, my dad played sixties and seventies tunes 
uh, on an acoustic guitar. And even that was kind of frowned upon, so he did it a lot less when I was younger. But he really got back into it, uh, you know, as I was growing up. And there were certain songs that he played where, you know, I would feel so damn much emotion that I didn't feel from anything else. I didn't, there wasn't any event in my life that could make me feel the way those songs did. And, and then secondly, I fell in love with uh, classical music because it was allowed and the violin. It totally moved me, some of it. I mean, some of it I found to be utterly boring, but some classical music really moved me. And so um, I moved to a neighborhood where everyone in the neighborhood, for some reason, played Suzuki violin. And so, of course, when all of my, all of my guy friends who I played baseball with and stuff played the violin, I was like, well, I need to play the violin, too. And they had all been playing for years. And I had, uh, so my grandmother basically uh, bought me a violin for Christmas one year when I was maybe 11. And these guys had all been playing since they were five or six. And I was way behind, but I wanted to be able to play in the like fiddle groups and stuff that we had. And, and so I worked my ass off. I had a teacher and I played, you know, four or five hours a day a lot. Um, my parents used to take my violin away uh, from me as a punishment because like that was like one of the only things I cared enough about. Like they'd be like, you can't go bowling with your friends. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to stay here and play violin. And so, uh, and then they'd be like, okay, you know, <laughs> you can't play violin right now. We need to talk about this. <laughs> like if I got in big trouble. And so like I used to sneak because my parents would take my violin away from me sometimes because I wouldn't go to bed till 4 a.m. And then I'd be really miserable the next day when it was time to go to school. And um, so they'd be like, hey, why don't we just hang on to this in our bedroom and you can have it back and start practicing again tomorrow morning. And I would go, like, sneak in and grab it and, like, pluck in bed, you know, like, try to learn a part. And I just, like, I got obsessed with, with like, improvement, I think, almost, like, learning. Um, and that sort of became a theme a lot throughout my musical life. But anyway, I, a couple, uh, maybe months in, maybe six months into playing violin, I went to this music camp. And there was this girl there that my little 11 year old heart fell in love with and she was like five years ahead of me in violin and i decided that by next year i would be in her group <laughs> so instead of playing four or five hours a day i started playing eight hours a day and a, a little ways into this uh my mom agreed to homeschool me and what homeschooling meant was basically i would procrastinate all the work i was supposed to do for homeschool and play violin all day long um, but the crazy thing is I totally did five years supposedly worth of violin learning in a year and I was in her group next year and it was amazing uh, it, I mean the, the feeling of learning faster than I was supposed to was something I think I was addicted to like the idea that I was doing it in a special way you know I mean I think that's a, that's a pretty common like 
millennial idea, like I'm special. Um, <laughs> and it's not, and it's not something I encourage, but I think it was valuable for me, uh, when I was trying to learn the violin, just to think like, I'm going to learn this better and faster than other people, you know? So that was, that was huge. Um, and I was in love with music. I was maybe, it was maybe two years later, I was, I think, 13, and I met this guy, um, and he had friends, you know, he had, like, tried out for the Mickey Mouse Club in Florida, and he had done all this stuff, and he, like, met, like, Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears, and he had friends who were writing songs, and um, they were writing songs for, specifically, like boy band style artists, like the Backstreet Boys. And when I found out that there was a guy that sat at home writing music that ended up on big records, like I didn't care that it was the Backstreet Boys. One, that's actually a funny story. The first record I ever heard, like rebelliously, finally, like I was at camp or something and one of my friends gave me her headphones and I was not supposed to listen to that kind of music. And I listened to it and it was like, I think like, uh, the first Backstreet Boys record. And I freaking loved it. Like that was the moment that my life went from black and white to color. I was like, oh my God, people sing things that I can feel. And it's like way more. And it, it's funny because it was totally just, you know, the kind of um, really silly pop music that was huge in the late 90s. Um, and I just fell in love with it. And then I mean, almost instantly, like, uh, I decided I was a person who listened to music. And so I got like, I remember still, like the first record I actually bought was a tape of What's the Story, Morning Glory by Oasis. And then I bought uh, Less of the Middle by Natalie Imbruglia. And then I bought uh, Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette. And so I was like spending my money I didn't really have, you know, money I would make from whatever mowing lawns or I think my parents gave me like a five dollar a week allowance or something for <laughs> I don't remember but I did not have money and I was like saving all of it up for you know for a month to buy one tape and then hide it uh you know in a shoebox full of other stuff under my bed and it was like a production to get out my Walkman with a head, only one side of the headphones work and like put a tape in it and listen to my evil music, you know? And, uh, but, uh, I, and then I started falling in love with these records and I remember, uh, specifically Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little Pill, that record just like, was like, whoa, like this is possible. And, and, and like Goo Goo Dolls, like that song, Iris, and I don't want the world to see me, you know, that song. Um, it totally, uh, moved me because I was like, gosh, this is, this is real. Like, this is how I feel. And this person I've never met because of the addition of melody, it's not just a poem. It's not just somebody writing in a book, like the combination of melody and words became this thing that moved me so much and made me feel less alone, which I think was almost a bigger deal than like the emotion was that I felt like, like understood for the first time because I wasn't a particularly socially adept kid. So I spent a lot of time alone. I mean, I, I played violin eight hours a day. That should tell you something, you know, like I, you know, like I really, really 
um, I think as most teenagers do, felt particularly misunderstood. So not only was I special in terms of learning the violin faster than you, but I was also more misunderstood than you for sure. And so, you know, when you go through these, these, these dark times where you feel unloved or unworthy or whatever as a 15 year old, I truly think that those emotions are tougher to deal with than adult emotions when you're dealing with real problems. You know what I mean? Like I think that young emotions are truly potent in terms of, you know, neurotransmitters. I mean, that's a, a clinical sounding way to say it, but I just think that there's more pain probably in a teenage body walking down a hall and getting ignored by somebody they thought was their friend than there is in an adult who is getting a divorce. You know what I mean? Like really serious shit is easier emotionally, I believe, for like a someone who's grown up than it is for someone who's in a body that is just ruining them all the time. I mean, like the, the, the life of a teenager is, is actually difficult. And I try to keep that in mind when they seem eye rolly, you know, when I'm like, Oh my gosh. But then I realize, like, no, that stuff is real and, and it has to be acknowledged. And my point in saying all of that is that I think that was the ultimate power of music to me at that age was look, uh, I feel understood for the first time in my life since maybe ever. I mean, even as a young child, I never felt understood like that, you know? And it's just like, um, the fact that music and lyrics could combine to give me that much emotion changed everything. And so that was the point. It was one, my friend who had all these contacts who, wrote for, for boy bands and stuff. And then two, falling in love with records. And then I got to talk on the phone with one of these guys uh, who was a writer. And he just gave me a little bit of advice. He's like, study structure, understand that there's a difference between a chorus, a verse, and a bridge, and understand how many of each you should have where in the song. And I just was like, okay, I'm gonna study songwriting. And so I'm starting to win concerto competitions as a violinist and, and lead the orchestra. and this whole time, and I thought I was going to be a violinist uh, or a professional skier. Like I, I got it super into skiing. I, the same year that I played violin all day, every day, I would go skiing a couple times a week for the afternoon. I'd go to town, take a violin lesson. Um, and it's funny because I'm like talking about violin lessons and skiing, and it makes it sound like sound like my parents were well off. We were distinctly not well off. <laughs> like we borrowed money our rent was like $500 a month and we did trades for my, my lessons and a junior ski pass was $120, which I saved up from doing dumb odd jobs. Um, and I only mention that because, because I want to point out that I understand that I had a beautiful privi privileged young life, but I don't want anyone to like hear the story and go, Oh, so you're one of those kids who was like, living in the suburbs and skiing and playing the violin. Like it was uh, the thing that made my life fun to me was almost that I wasn't cool. I didn't have stuff. I didn't have, have money, but I thought, man, this personal investment matters more than all of that. So I actually had kind of a chip on my shoulder about in my mind being 
somewhat less fortunate than my friends or whatever, which, you know, to a, to a great degree is, is kind of silly. But I think that that is an important element of the story because I was working so hard because I thought this is the one thing I have control over that matters more than the hand I've been dealt. Right? Like that was always, that was always deep in my bones, something that, that made it worthwhile. So I was a freshman in high school and I had talked to this guy on the phone and I'd started studying choruses and verses and I had started playing guitar. And I, I mean, you know, again, I attacked it like violin. So for a while, I was only playing violin two hours a day because I was playing guitar four or five hours a day, and I'd make my fingers bleed every day. And then, um, you know, it was, I mean, really, it was just because I really wanted to have this tool that I could use to make music, um, you know, and it was like, and it was like music that had words and was three or four minutes long had become subtly more important to me than the music that I was good at playing. It had taken over my life. Like when I say black and white to color, my life went from black and white to color. That's kind of, I mean, a silly overused metaphor, but it's kind of true too. Like I found something. I was like, oh my God, people do this. They create this. And some of them, it's what their job is. Because I always found the idea of a job to be utterly abhorrent from the time I was a little kid. I was like, you know, like, yeah, I'm going to do something for someone else for the right to keep living. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> that was, so that was really like the turning point. I think, I think I was a, like a freshman in high school and I decided I'm going to be a singer uh, for a living. And I started, you know, writing songs on the bus and being obsessed with these lists of half written songs and, and, uh, and, you know, I finally at one point got a song written that I thought really, really worked. It was maybe, maybe two years later. So I was a, I was maybe a, a, a maybe between sophomore and junior year, or it was, I guess it was winter. So anyway, I was, I was in high school and it was a couple of years after deciding that I wanted to be a, a singer for a living and a, and a songwriter that I wrote this song that I thought was really great. And uh, there was this camp for uh, the aforementioned church where they had a talent show. And um, I sang my song. And for whatever reason, in a way that I totally didn't deserve, people stood up, some people stood up on top of their chairs and screamed and cheered and just went nuts and it was just far and away the best reaction of the whole you know thing and that created a totally motivating and totally unhealthy addiction for years that one moment like made me into somebody who was like i need people to see me the way those people saw me um and that was a huge part of it like the initial urge to get into music was very, very pure. And the thing that drove me for quite a while after that was much more based on, okay, adulation again, please. Like I really, like it was, it blew my mind how good it felt 
being someone who wasn't particularly socially capable or wasn't wasn't particularly liked to be liked that much by that many people all at once. And then people really did treat me differently afterwards. Like it was like a it was like a night and day change in my life, especially with those people. Um, and I don't know that it was a terrible thing. I mean, I really developed some confidence in myself for the first time almost ever. And I felt validated that, hey, maybe the, you know, football guys that shoved me around weren't right. Maybe I was right. You know, maybe the the careers teacher wasn't right. Maybe I was right because I did doubt that stuff sometimes. And uh, so that talent show was a big turning point. And at that point, I started dedicating all my waking time to music. I've, I've thought about this a lot. I think that um, sometimes a great, uh, an enormous amount of work is driven by motivations, by motives that people wouldn't consider pure motives. And I wonder if that's just part of the process. Because I've thought about it, about how that affected me and how grateful I am for it. Because I don't know that without that moment and that um, validation at the time, as a scared kid, that I would have had the guts to say, you know, I'm not doing what normal people do. I'm not going to school. I'm not getting a job. I'm not, uh, you know, going to take a violin scholarship. Like, I'm sure I could have gone to college for free. You know, um, people at various colleges were talking to me in a recruiting way, you know. And uh, I don't think I would have had the guts to be like, this is what I want without that validation. And even that motivation of I want another taste of that feeling of, I did something and it moved people enough and they loved it and they're freaking out about it. Um, and so I don't really regret that aspect of, of how this all came about. Um, because I, I really do think that that was, um, that was the beginning of the real pursuit, you know, and it quickly, it quickly became about songwriting and, and music and, and it quickly became something where, where the point was that I wanted to make stuff that was moving and I wanted to make people feel less alone. And that didn't mean that being seen or, or, or being valued or being seen as valuable became less important. It just, I think at the beginning, it was almost the only thing that drove the early action. And I think that later, it was something that was always there, but didn't run the show. I was getting ready to be a violinist. We've made it about halfway through the show, and we're going to have a quick pause. Ads are irritating distractions, so they'll never be part of the Musicians Can Thrive podcast. There are three things you can do that'd be super helpful, though. One, whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, subscribe! Two, Share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. Text it to them, email it, 
post it on your favorite social media platform, send a smoke signal, whatever you got to do. Just share the episode. That'd be great. Three, if you're feeling extra generous, leave a quick review on your favorite podcast platform. I appreciate your support. Back to the show. For almost a decade, I was motivated to build the career of a musician by my dream of having my name on a billboard in a big city and selling out world tours. I was 21 by the time I realized that life wasn't something I actually wanted to live. I'm not saying that your motivation to work on music needs to be the most selfless, kind-hearted thing in the world. What I am saying is do what you need to do to break out of your shell and help yourself get some initial momentum. But once that happens... Don't be afraid to check in with yourself and pivot to a different course as often as you need to until you find a path motivated by something you're entirely confident in and proud of. I, I th- and I wonder if almost everybody who does this has, because you can, by the way, you can read somebody where it runs the show. You can see it, like when they're at an open mic, you know, I've, I've thought that of like, man, this thing where you want to be, you want to be seen as better than everybody has to be mitigated to some degree before your art is going to, is going to, to translate. You oh, know? Man. Um, have you ever thought that? Have you ever seen it where you just see it? Like, like the whole room is soaked in a, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. And you kind of want to look away for that reason. I've never really heard that articulated so specifically but I've definitely had my moments of going to an open mic and seeing someone walk on stage and you can just tell they think they're the hottest yeah, piece of like, shit in that room. They don't. And I don't they even don't want to pay attention to, to them. They do. Right? And then they can't they, even like, follow through with their guitar. And I'm like, come on, man. Oh yeah. It's, it's crazy how much, how much uh, that just, I think like you exude I think you exude where you're really coming from, honestly. I think that people do not hide what they are and where they're coming from nearly as well as they think they do. I think that's one of the great flaws of people's, you know, like they think they can hide what they really are just by not saying it. Yeah, I've definitely had my moments where I was a little too cocky. (laughs) Of course. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having your moments of being a little too cocky. I mean, look, I think that growing up is basically the process of continually realizing how idiotic your viewpoint is and then altering it. I mean, that's, that's probably an oversimplification of the process, but I really do. You know, I think that... Sometimes you need that oversimplification. Right. I mean, I think so. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, and by the way, this applies to music too. Sometimes music, um, sometimes it's what we talked about earlier. My music was terrible and I was certain that it was major label quality. And then I realized that that viewpoint is not accurate. I adjust my filters and I try again. And it's kind of like what I said with, uh, with the adulation motivation, I think that my delusional self-belief probably 
was necessary to get me to follow to keep following through because I think if I had known how bad I was at the beginning, I wouldn't have been able to maybe bear what was happening. You know, like I think that uh, I think that it there's there's almost like this really interesting tension between knowing you're not nearly there, which especially as I started being really serious about it. I would understand how big of a gap there was between me and the things I loved. And then I would also be a little bit overconfident about how good I was or how good I was headed toward being. And there was like this, there's this, like this constant tension between like, I'm really great. I'm ahead of the game. And then like, but actually when I look at this objectively, it really isn't quite there yet, or it's not really even close to there. And I need to, keep improving those skills. Does that make sense? Like that, that tension between like, I'm awesome and I'm not that awesome is, uh, do you, do you agree that, that it's valuable? I mean, have you experienced that? Oh, 100%. I almost wonder if that is where the whole fake it till you make it attitude comes from because at some point, if you want to walk into a room and command the attention of an audience, you do to some level need to present yourself in a way where it's like I'm some hot shit like you don't want to be so arrogant to the point where you turn people off but you do need to be able to walk in and own that space otherwise they're not going to give you a half a second they're going to look at you go oh they don't know what they're doing and then tune you out the entire time you're playing and just continue to have their conversation with whatever they're drinking Absolutely. And, and that was one of the things I learned, as I told you earlier, in the, in the restaurant vape scene was just, you know, there really is a certain amount of, amount of confidence and willingness to, to reach across those barriers that's necessary to have any engagement at all, which is important, uh, you know, in, in, in once you get on a stage. Because I thought it would be easier on a stage where everybody was focused. It's way harder, at least to me. Like, like you start to, if you feel the audience's attention drifting a little bit when you're on stage and they're there and they paid and the room has a social silent rule, like everybody is sitting in chairs, and then you feel the room drifting, that's way harder. And you need the skill of being able to be completely present and confident, which is hard to do if you think you suck. (laughs) I'm curious about how cities make an impact on your ability to make money as a musician. And having also grown up in Bozeman, I know that it does have its own small music scene, but trying to tour in the state of Montana is impossible if it's not summer <laughs> or rather just very dangerous. Um, so I'm wondering, I know you did move to Phoenix at some point and you have connections in the Chicago area that you've toured with. So when did you know that yeah, you needed well, to move to Phoenix? Cause that seemed like a big, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's hilarious. Cause that's the next uh, part of the story. Um, basically after, after high school, I started going to seminars about songwriting and I started doing this crazy thing where like, I didn't have a car so I would ride my, I would borrow my friend's bike, I'd ride it to Borders 
and write in um, books. And I would get all the books on music theory and songwriting, and then I would just copy down all the most relevant information into notebooks. I still have them somewhere. Um, and then I would take it home and like sit at the piano and write. And uh, right around that time, I went to LA, and I was going to move there. Um, I had a friend who had an apartment with an extra room, and I was like going to sign a lease and get a job and all this stuff. And uh, I met a guy who was a producer who worked on you know some pretty big records at this conference. And um, I got to meet him, and I asked him, what uh, would you do? You know, like, I'm about to move to L.A., and what, what would you recommend? And he goes, don't move to L.A. And I'm like, at first I was like, fuck you. Like, what are you talking about? And he goes, he goes, let me back up. Do you think you have multiple hit songs? He goes, undeniable songs that, like, if a bunch of people listened to them, they'd be like, holy crap, this is exactly on the money and it's and it's working and it's amazing do you have do you have hits and i thought for a second and i went well i got some good songs but maybe not he goes and go home and write songs he's like go back to montana where your rent is cheap and write songs until you you have absolute undeniable greatness and not just in your own mind but ask people who matter not your mom and not your friends for feedback and get to the point where you got it, where you got songs that are working, that are firing on all cylinders and are amazing and your demos or recordings of them are remarkable, then you can move to LA. And I kind of was angry at first, but I ended up listening. I ended up not moving to LA and I went back to Montana to write. And I think that's one of the biggest things is absolutely just to answer your question, cities make a huge difference. Like where, like, Location is massive and maybe less so in this era of, you know, um, digital file sharing and, and, you know, digital nomading. Like you can totally make songs on your laptop and collaborate with somebody in L.A. and you can have a whole network in L.A. or New York or, or Nashville and, and live wherever you want. But that wasn't the case then. And it also is important to note that for gigging, for playing shows, certain cities are way better than others. Um, and, and honestly, a good music scene can often be a bad gigging scene, right? Like, I would say it's probably, I don't know, but I would say it's probably harder to gig full-time in Austin even, even though it's the live music capital of the world. You know, but I would say it would probably be harder to gig full-time for a lot of people in Austin than it would be in Phoenix or uh, you know, Denver or Seattle because, because when a music scene gets well-known, people flood the market that are willing to play just to play. And so it drives, it drives the pay down. And, you know, in my experience, like if you're going to gig in Nashville, you can probably get some restaurant gigs in the suburbs that pay. But a lot of it's like, okay, how many people are you bringing out? And like, what are you doing? You know, and you can't play six nights a week and bring people out. No one can do that except, you know, like Vince Gill, you know, but if he, if he wanted to play six nights a week in Nashville, he could probably bring people out to whatever bar he was at for a long time. But, but, um, you know, it seems like to me at least that being a major music market is, makes a place worse as a, as a major gigging market. You know, <laughs> um...
Like you, I was definitely curious about what characteristics add up to make a city that has a good gig scene. So let's find out. High population and a lot of places. I mean, we were, a buddy of mine uh, made a map that had, and he just put, he dropped a pin wherever there was a place with live music in Phoenix. And I think he ended up somewhere close to 400 just in the Valley of the Sun. You know, so when you have 400 options, you can get rejected by literally 99% of them and still play four nights a week, right? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, and maybe not quite that much, but you, you know, um, and in the world of gigging, I think that, that, that hearing no and sending another email and making another phone call is a really important thing. So anyway, the, the, what happened with Phoenix and the reason I moved was kind of uh, utilitarian and kind of emotional, which was basically I had, I worked for like obsessively, like I, you know, like sell gear and, and barely make rent. And then I ended up moving into the studio and sleeping on the floor of the studio because the guy who owned it was a good friend of mine. And, and it was like I was taking my, my notebooks that had music theory and songwriting, and then I did the same thing with studio engineering, and I started trying to make my own record. And so I spent over two years on this one record. And when I was maybe 85% done with it, um, my father died. And, and he was like my biggest, you know my biggest fan and my cheerleader and he knew all the words and he went to every show and mouthed the words to my songs. And, and even my early quote unquote touring, I would do these bookstore coffee shop things. Uh, uh, it's a chain actually that I go to a lot called Hastings and, and they, I don't think they exist anymore, but uh, one of the big things they had was movie rental. So on Friday night I could walk around to the movie rental crowd and hand them a postcard that said I was playing in the coffee shop on the other side of the store. And a lot of them would come over and stick around for a couple songs and buy a record. They didn't get paid at, at all um, to play these shows, but I would often sell 10 or 12 records, which if you've, you've done enough gigging to know that 10 or 12 records uh, in a public show place is a lot. Yeah, and so I'd make 100 bucks, 120 bucks, and then i raise the price of the records to 15, and it was enough to pay for gas and kind of sometimes be my my living and I, I was also a janitor um, in Bozeman at a Montessori school and I uh, had just enough money to barely survive for a couple of years while I made this record that was going to change everything and w when I got done I was completely out of money I had no car um, I had inherited my dad's car when he died and he uh, only had liability insurance on it. So I, I hit a deer at 80 miles an hour and the car was totaled. I had no recourse really. Um, and so I had no car. And so um, my mom was really good friends with this guy uh, named David Contreras who ran a painting crew in Phoenix. And he was in Montana and he picked me and all of my worldly possessions up and drove me to Phoenix, and I started working immediately for his painting crew in 110 degree weather. Um, 
it was devastating. I had spent my whole life on music up to this point, and I felt like everything was over. Um, and it was like a seriously long, dark night of the soul. I mean, it was like I, I painted all day, and then uh, instead of writing songs or doing something productive, I was so tired, I would watch like TV shows, and I watched like every episode of Prison Break and 24 and like the OC and stuff, you know? And, uh, and I just would stay up most of the night, and so I never got enough sleep, and, I was, uh, and it was hot, and I wasn't making enough money. Um, to, uh, to even really pay my bills. Oh, I forgot to mention this part. My mom lived in Phoenix and two of my best friends. So I moved in with my mom until I could afford to move in with my friends for uh, a, a short while. I lived with my friends in, in Tempe. Um, and the turning point was there was this open mic. And it's kind of amazing because there was a moment where I was... Um, sitting at home trying to decide if I was going to go to this open mic in Tempe. And I was like, no, I don't want to. And finally, I was just like, you know what? I got to do it. I got to go. And I got up and I went and I met a guy there um, who was like, hey, you're pretty good. There's this kind of like sort of invite-only open mic in Ahwatukee. I don't know if you know where that is, but it's, it's right next door to this Trader Joe's. And I was like, that is literally walking distance from my mom's apartment where I lived at the time. And uh, I walked down with my guitar and played at it and made some musical friends. And uh, the next week I did it again, and I was maybe the third or fourth week. I didn't realize it, cause, um, but it was Halloween day on this Wednesday, and there was no one in the bar. And I told the owner I wanted to play anyway and asked him if I could. And so he let me set up. They had a house PA. He let me set up, and I played all night for, like, a couple customers and him. And uh, at the end of that, he said, would you like to play here every Friday and Saturday? And I said, sure. And he was like, okay, how much do you want? And I had no idea what to charge, and I said 75 bucks <laughs> for each. And so he, and I really thought, like, if he would give me seven, I thought he was going to say, well, we can't do that, you know. Um, <laughs> but he was like, sure. And so... My first Friday and Saturday, I played for 75 bucks each night, and then I made about 100 tips each night. And at the end of that weekend, I had made more from music than I had made all week painting um, for 10 or $11 an hour. And I thought, hmm. So I literally called David, my boss, and gave him my two weeks notice and he goes, Oh, okay. And then he called me back and he's like, do you, like, do you want to just quit now? And I don't know if that was because I was a terrible painter <laughs> or like, or what, you know, he was like, do you want to just quit now? And I was like, sure. And so that was like my last day of a real job. And, and, uh, and, and from there, you know, kind of, I, the people, again, a guy that I met at that first open mic, called me uh, out of the blue and said, hey, I've got this weekly Wednesday that, uh, that at this resort, and if you want it, um, my band is, is moving to a bigger gig on Wednesday nights. And I said, sure, I'll take a weekly Wednesday. And he's like, I'm sorry, it only pays 150 bucks. And I was like, crap, that's what I make from two of my gigs. All right, yeah, sure, you know. 
And so then I started playing every Wednesday, and the manager loved me and added Sunday. So suddenly I was playing Wednesday, Sunday, and, and then Friday and Saturday. I was playing four nights a week, and I was making more money than I'd ever imagined being able to make in my life. Uh, not in my life, but, like, certainly in the kinds of menial jobs that I was doing when I was 22, you know, painting and, 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 you know, I didn't get good paint pay. Like I said, I was making 10 bucks an hour. The other guys in the crew were making like 17, 18 bucks an hour because they were, you know, veterans or whatever. But, um, and then I had been, a, like I said, a janitor before. So I, you know, kind of vacuumed up a school uh, a couple times a week. And, and that was, you know, and so it was just shocking to me to suddenly, be able to go to Chipotle, you know, like it was like, what? Uh, this is, this is real. And, and, and so, uh, like, I, I don't know anyone in Bozeman, for example, to back to the city point who has, you know, a bunch of four different weekly gigs anywhere. It just doesn't exist. Um, you know, it really, it really doesn't. And I, I know people that make a full-time living in Montana, but they, they drive hundreds of miles a week. And they're always booking gigs one at a time, um, which can be pretty exhausting to fill up five nights a week all over the state and always have to be managing your calendar in advance one gig at a time with no booking agent or whatever. Um, that's, you know, that's a lot. That's a lot of work. And it's not work that most people are willing to do. Like, um, so, yeah, and what makes a good gigging market in my mind is a a bad music scene with a lot of places that have live music. And what I mean by bad music scene, I don't mean that as an insulting thing toward Phoenix. It's just that Phoenix has a relatively small, unknown music scene. The actual music scene, the way people see it in terms of like, you know, major music clubs that uh, big regional touring artists come to, it's, it's a pretty small pool of that compared to Austin or, or Nashville or New York. Or, or certainly LA, um, and and so that um, I think a good gigging scene is probably a music scene that's that maybe underperforms in the traditional way, but has a lot of places that want live music for ambience for their customers, um, you know, and so that was why Phoenix was so good and bad for me in that it was addictive to have a moderately good income, especially when I got it kind of dialed in and I started playing six, seven times a week. Um, it was addictive to have that good income and hard to let it go when I finished a record and actually wanted to, uh, you know, get music out there in a, in a more serious way. Um, you know, just sort of having Gig, gigging to fall back on because I don't think that any musician in their heart wants to be a, a background music artist, um, you know, forever. And I mean, I've met people who love it and they're grateful. And but their point isn't like, hey, I'm a songwriter. Their point is, I love the fun of playing music and it's nice to be able to do it and get paid. Um, but for someone like me, where it was like, I want to be a songwriter and I want music to mean something and to lift the heaviness of people's lives and to, you know, to, to be valuable in that way. I think that, that in some ways gigging became a crutch and, and, a, and a bit of a trap that made me work less hard on what I really wanted. 
Yes, I'm bringing it up again. This idea of a conflict between loving your artistic pursuit and wanting to do it regardless of how much you're paid because you love it, and at the same time, living in a world where bills need to be paid. For me, most of my time spent on a stage wasn't paid for. But for those who have spent hours and hours on stage, needing to make their livelihood from that, they have a well-informed perspective on when to ask for money in exchange for their art, and how much. Well, it's interesting because I have a friend who started gigging for the first time in his life last year, and he was so much more upwardly mobile about it than, than me, and he just was like, I know I'm worth worth it, and so he started like booking band gigs, and he would like get these, these corporate, reach out to these corporate bids and, and like charge $1,800, $2,000, just like, I mean, immediately. And he had an agreement with all of his, all of his guys in the band. He's like, you guys are hands for hire. I pay you 200 bucks if it's a two hour gig, 300 if it's a three hour gig, 100 bucks an hour. So what would happen is he would be doing these gigs and they'd tip him and stuff and he'd make twelve, thirteen hundred dollars for a, you know, a three hour gig or a two hour gig. Um, and I think that there really is a thing about possibility. What happened to me, and I want to articulate this well because it's one of the biggest things in my life. What happened to me when that guy offered me Friday and Saturday was I found out it was possible for someone to want to pay me some amount of money to play music. And when he said, when he accepted $75, I thought I was the luckiest guy in the world. And then I started finding out that, no, there were guys that were making $300 to play a gig. You know, so when the guy said only 150 that was a massive, massive possibility shift for me. When he used the word only about twice as much as I'd ever made to play a gig, you know, I was like, oh, okay, well, let me reevaluate my whole worldview, right? Um, and so it wasn't about me getting better to where I could ask for more or more valuable in the marketplace necessarily because your value in the marketplace, really, in music, no matter what bar owners think. Bar owners think, oh, yeah, bring in your fans. That's not a viable strategy for most live music places. Like, you have to pay somebody a lot. Somebody who actually has enough of a fan base to provide your bar with way more customers every week is going to cost a lot of money. And anyone else is lying, and they're bringing 10 friends in the first time they play, and then they bring no one in until the bar owner notices. So I think the, the, the best, I think the best strategy for a bar that wants live music, the best thing that you have to offer as a musician is an ambience that their customers appreciate. So I think, I think that, that what bar owners are really buying from you is keep people around buying more stuff, you know, like, like people want to go there because man, the live music is great here. So I think the best strategy for a bar is to honestly focus on quality first and foremost. And I mean that as the best money making strategy because I've seen these bars that hire anyone who can bring people in and they often are not doing well with their live music because you know, those people can bring people in once or twice and then the other customers 
are maybe put off because the quality is lower. That happens all the time. Some of the best, some of the best uh, self promoters are oftentimes, you know, and certainly don't want to paint everybody with one brush because some of the best self promoters are the best musicians too. But some of them, um, the people that have really good followings are, you know, whatever, have really good followings because of something other than the quality of their sound. Um, and so I guess my point in all that is that um, it's not necessarily about value as much as about worldview, belief, and possibility, which some people might disagree with me on, but I can tell you the, 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 the change in how much I was making and how often I was getting hired sort of directly correlates with what I knew or believed to be possible. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sounds like a total game changer. It, absolutely, and it happened over and over. It was the same thing with listening rooms. Like when I found out that there were these things called house concerts where, you know, somebody has curated an audience who believes in their taste, and you show up in a town you've never been to and play for 50 people who all pay 20 bucks at the door and then get all that money. Um, and then these people are way more interested in buying your merch because they're listening the whole time and you can tell your stories and all that. I mean, that was a game changer for me, not because it didn't pre-exist my knowledge of it, but my knowledge of it made it something that I could try to figure out how to do. I'm actually very curious about that. Your experience with house concerts and using that as a way to tour, because I've learned about a few different ways that people do house shows in Austin. And when I was first considering, okay, what kind of shows do I want to book? You know, as a singer songwriter, without a band to back me up, I was like, you know, I'm not going to go down to like this big legendary bar on sixth street and say, Hey, let me play for a few hours to your loud Saturday night crowd. You know, it's just, it's not the right fit. Right. Cause if you're doing that, then you better be playing covers or your originals better be so poppy and like instantly catchy that you can grab the attention of people who quite literally don't give a shit about you. House concerts are the best. I mean, they're, they, there's a little bit of a double-edged sword because sometimes the audience fit isn't quite right. And so now you're playing in a room full of people who are listening to you, but they're not necessarily into what you're doing. I mean, that happens occasionally for me, certainly. You know, because I played a lot of house concerts on the kind of folk circuit. And I would say that my music leans toward folk pop. So some of these people wanted, like, you know, uh, political activism and super detailed storytelling. And they care way more about lyrics than music. And I've always been kind of a music guy. Like, I, I, uh, I love Paul McCartney because I think he's just one of the greatest melody writers. But I've never been like, wow, the Beatles, those lyrics. Like, I never listened to whatever. I mean, even some of the more profound work. I mean, I think Blackbird's one of the greatest songs of all time. Um, and especially because there's like that, that uh, you know, metaphor about civil rights. But, um, but it's still, I wouldn't say that, like, I listen to the lyrics of Blackbird and go, wow. I mean, like, I want to listen to lyrics I listen to, you know, uh, Jason Isbell or... Uh, you know, Gregory Allen Isakov or, you know, um, Josh Ritter. I mean, like those guys are poets almost to a greater degree than they're songwriters in a way in my mind. And I don't mean that negatively. Jason Isbell, I think, is an absolute genius and 
in both music and lyrics. But yeah, so when I wasn't doing that in-house concerts, like people maybe came to hear Jason Isbell and then they got my thing. And so, you know, that's the, that's the only occasional downside of a house concert is that you can be the wrong audience for, you, I mean, the wrong artist for an audience that's there to hear you. And that can be strange and kind of tough. But in terms of, I mean, it, it's, it's probably my favorite kind of venue because you can hang out with people and you can tell your stories and people are interested and it's a way shorter show. You don't play a three hour house concert, at least not in my experience. They're usually 90 minutes, maybe two hours if the audience is super long. Please check the show notes for links to find Aaron Howard's music, newsletter, and all that fun stuff. I've also added some links to things that we referenced that you might want to explore. One last thing before you go today. There are techniques, strategies, and routines that work best for different people. With that in mind, I encourage you to consider this. If you were to treat your creativity as a limited resource that needs to be used strategically every day, how might that change the way you approach doing your creative work? Personally, I used to be a night owl. I would stay up late writing songs. As I got older, I developed an appreciation for the quiet hours of the early morning. Before my brain was tired from things that had taken up the day, and before I had to go do other things that I wasn't so excited about. Starting the day fresh and feeling like I've created something, even if it's not the most magnificent thing I've ever done, has had a serious impact on improving my day-to-day mood. <laughs>